understood, we can define ecumenism as the movement toward Christian unity. The body of Christ is divided. That division is a scandal, which contradicts the will of Christ. Ecumenism is the spirit-led effort to bring about reunion. We understand that ecumenism works on a number of levels. First, there's the simple level of ecumenical friendship. And we are very good at that here at Hope. We get along. At least I get along with most of these people. <laughs> we work together. I'm so pleased to see many of my Protestant friends, Protestant students,
From a smattering of individuals to a tolerated community to a robust minority to the St. Benedict Forum, our Roman Catholics have emerged as vital, treasured, and trusted, indeed invaluable, and indispensable members of our Hope College community. Today we make this ecumenical college community together in service to and celebration of our triune God. So we welcome the bishop today in eager celebration of our shared work and look forward to some incisive and scintillating Episcopal wisdom and insight. And we mark the distinctions this bishop brings to us. His degrees from the University of Notre Dame in government and international studies, St. Mary's Seminary in divinity, and a licentiate and doctorate from the Catholic University of America. Most Reverend Wachovia was ordained in 1979 in Cleveland, Ohio, taught at St. Mary's Seminary, and has been Vice Chancellor of the Diocese of Cleveland. And in April of 2013, Pope Francis appointed Most Reverend Wachovia as the 12th Bishop of the Diocese of Grand Rapids. And now at the pinnacle, he takes the reins as the moderator of the St. Benedict Forum. <laughs> Please join me in welcoming Bishop David J. Wachovia to Hope College. Thank you very much, Jeff. Uh, I, I want you to know that uh, the bishops are still being martyred. <laughs> Exile, we do have a lot of uh, uncertainty, especially in the Middle East, and of course the Christians are you know, almost being exterminated in places where they have very ancient churches, but I, I'm not anticipating anything quite like that in West Michigan. <laughs> As was mentioned, I do come from uh, Ohio. I was a priest of the Diocese of Cleveland for 34 years before uh, getting that fateful phone call. I was most recently, uh, what I was doing when I was appointed by Pope Francis, and he was only uh, Pope for 13 days when I got the call, so I'm sure he didn't know me or know much about me, uh, was that uh, I was a pastor of a parish. It was a parish of about 2,200 families, about 25 miles southeast of Cleveland, Chagrin Falls, Ohio. And uh, I was minding my own business during Holy Week when I got phone call and the secretary came in and said there's some guy on the phone from Washington who will not give me his name but insists on talking to you. I said, this is the call I don't want to take. <laughs> but to make a long story short, it was Archbishop Vigano who was the apostolic nuncio informing me of the good news that I had been appointed a bishop of Grand Rapids. Uh, he hastened to point out which is in Michigan. <laughs> I don't think he knew where it was, but he wanted to make sure I knew where it was. <laughs> And I did, believe it or not, I had been uh, in Grand Rapids previously as a tourist to a uh, priest friend and I uh, liked history very much and we went to the President Ford Museum and the City Museum. And so I, I was here really, uh, not under coercion, but as a, a destination for me. So I'm very happy to be in West Michigan. West Michigan feels an awful lot like Northeastern Ohio. It's the Midwest, so it's a very easy and good fit. I'm very much familiar with lake effect snow. I've lived, I've lived most of my life. 
especially on the east side where you can have no snow on the west side and the, beach, the sun will be shining if you get two feet, uh, just about 25 miles to the east. So uh, this is not uh, something new for me. It's uh, part of the background package. The Diocese of Grand Rapids embraces 11 counties in West Michigan. We have about 190,000 Catholics. We have 82 parishes. And so that is my responsibility. Uh, my responsibility is to uh, you know, be the shepherd, to guide uh, our people in the mission of Christ. And you might ask, well, what are the requirements for doing that? The former Bishop of Cleveland, under whom I served most of my time in Cleveland, was Bishop Philip. And he called me after the press conference in Grand Rapids and said, you know, Dave, he said, you really don't have to learn how to be a bishop, you just need to remember how to be a pastor. Which has been really good advice. You know, Pope Francis has said, priests and bishops need to have the scent of their sheep. And, and this is what I've been trying to do. Uh, and, uh, the bishop, as a leader, needs to be leading his people in the front of the flock, he needs to be in their midst. And he also has to be behind, you know, looking for the strays and those who go off course. And I think that's a pretty good description of what a pastor is supposed to do as the chief shepherd. And that is what I have been doing. I've been trying to visit all of the parishes, uh, the 82 parishes in the 11 county area. And I found that to be very helpful because when you go to see, uh, go to visit a parish, for no apparent reason other than visiting there. You you get to know the people, there's usually a reception afterwards, and you're able to, uh, and people will tell you what's on their mind, good and bad. You don't have to go to town, town hall meetings. All I have to do is go there and hang around the reception, and if there's something on people's mind, they'll let you know in a hurry. So I find that to be very, very helpful. Uh, I've also visited, I'm, I'm very, very much a fan of our Catholic schools. I've visited, we have 29 we have 25 Catholic grade schools in the Diocese of Grand Rapids, and we have four high schools. The nearest one here being the State Central Catholic. We have two in Grand Rapids, and believe it or not, we have a very, a very rare thing, which used to be more common, but it's very rare in the United States today. We have a parish high school. We have one parish in Portland, Michigan, St. Patrick's, that goes from preschool to grade 12 which was not unusual you know, about 110 years ago, but uh, more recently, uh, high schools have been more freestanding apart from the parishes. Uh, in any case, uh, that has been one of the things I want to do, is just to get to, to know the diocese. It has a very rich history, and I think that's very important for me to know. And of course, one of the more intriguing aspects of being bishop in West Michigan is the Christian reform that Churches. Uh, Church of America uh, seems like most of you seem to be here in this part of the country. And so I am very much looking forward to developing relations with both the uh, Reformed Church of America as well as the Christian Reform. Because I think that uh, in the year and a half that I've been here, I, uh, I feel that the Reformed Churches have exercised a very, very positive influence on the whole area. I admire the, the discipline and the firmness of faith that the Reformed churches have. And I, I feel that that may have uh, rubbed off on some of our, our Catholic
even with such things as sleepovers, you know, when you're, you go to your, your friend's house and, you know, they're very, very uh, attentive to uh, their religious practices and, and going to church and things like that, and kind of gives people a wake-up call that that's something that we all need to do. And I think that's a very wonderful effect that the Reformed churches, you know, to be stalwart and steadfast in their faith, I think it's helped, you know, everybody uh, to appreciate and practice their faith in a deeper way. You know, the first pope to call for the so-called new evangelization was St. Pope John Paul II. And uh, the new evangelization really is uh, to re-evangelize those who may indeed uh, be catechized but not yet uh, converted, so to speak. The Catholic Church has done a very good job at catechizing its members, but in order to get people to lay down their lives for Christ and to have the, their, their faith really be the, the absolute priority by which they order everything is, is a much tougher challenge. If you've been involved in evangelization and missionary work, you know that uh, you know, winning souls for Christ is very labor-intensive. It's one-on-one. -on -one. You cannot graduate classes of people who all of a sudden become on fire uh, with the Lord and the mission of, of the Lord. And so that is something popes have recognized, Pope uh, John Paul II, over 30 years ago, which has been re-echoed by the uh, subsequent popes. And even under Pope Benedict has a new Roman congregation for the, uh, the new evangelization. That's how important it is. And frankly, we will not, uh, we really will not uh, get very far in our mission if we don't um, energize, shall we say, the base. And the first people that the new evangelization is aiming for are those who show up on Sunday on a regular basis the faithful to get them motivated to live their faith with joy, to share their faith with conviction, and to be able to explain and articulate their faith accurately in a very attractive way. And that is really what is, is very important. And we need uh, foot soldiers, so to speak. And the other thing, of course, is we are also very much interested in bringing the, the traditional subjects of evangelization of those who have yet to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so this really is the, the most proper uh, outward thrust for the efforts of uh, you know, preaching the good news of the gospel. And so that really is something which is critical. And uh, I wish there were an easy way to do it, but it is not. It is not. It's a very challenging thing because people have to really give them themselves. And that is something which I hope to do in the years that will be here as the, uh, the Catholic Bishop of, uh, of Grand Rapids. I think it's also important, I, you know, again, I've only been a bishop for a year and a half, so I'm not really a fond of wisdom when it comes from that perspective. As it was mentioned earlier, uh, you know, I began you know, as an associate pastor in Lorraine, Ohio, way uh, back when, and from there I was asked to study graduate studies at Catholic University in the early 80s. And then I spent 20 years on the seminary faculty teaching canon law, which really is the internal law of the church. It does have ecumenical dimensions to it. There is a wonderful directory for ecumenism that was put out in 1993, which really gives us some very helpful guidelines on how to interact with our brothers and sisters in the Christian faith. But in, in you know, teaching for 20 years, being on the bishop's staff for 20 years, um, and 
then after that, uh, becoming a pastor for seven years. And uh, it was just a wonderful background to have to become a, a bishop, uh, especially uh, having the experience of knowing the church's inner law and how that works, being in the bishop's office to help the pastors. The pastors were calling the chancery for advice on some very interesting issues. And of course, they gave me some very practical examples to share with my seminarians in terms of uh, explaining the, the canons and prescriptions of the law. The last seven years, though, as pastor were most helpful. I mean, that, I think, is really important for being a church leader. You, you must be, uh, the way we, we see Pope Francis presenting himself is, is very authentic, very simple, uh, in the good sense of the word, and also, um, you know, leading with the wonderful major themes of the gospel, with uh, welcome and love and compassion and forgiveness. That is how, those are the major themes of, of, uh, of the, uh, the good news. And so to be able to do that first before you know, getting into the hair splitting, so to speak, with some of the other uh, things that are involved in, in church parents and structure. So I see that as very important. Also, I see myself as a leader in West Michigan, a Christian leader, as uh, trying to uh, give voice to uh, certainly the, the Catholic understanding of things, but perhaps on a wider scale also the other, some of the other Christian churches. There are many voices of evangelization in our society today. I mean, we look at higher education, for example, uh, is one of the voices of evangelization. The government is an evangelizing voice, and they have their own religion and values. The entertainment industry and uh, people who are involved in, uh, in media and the arts, they all have their own perspective, and there is no such thing as any kind of valueless or value-free um, atmosphere in any of these areas. And so our voice is one of many that is competing for the attention of people. And so it's every opportunity that we get to be able to speak about the things which we believe are true and unchangeable, and which should really guide uh, the conduct of people for the common good. Uh, I will do everything I can to Formal heretics and material heretics. Formal means that you 
you really left the church and the heretics maybe were born into that situation, more or less. Now, of course, we look at our uh, at the Christian uh, churches as our, our separate brothers and sisters, for whom we do have this desire for convergence and unity, because we are all part of the larger church of Christ, and that you know, the elements of the spirit and sanctification can be found in all of those who profess uh, to bear the name Christian. So that I think is is something that's extremely extremely important. So we certainly have had. Good contacts um, on the local level. I certainly have found that uh, to be true here, and to be able to share common prayer, common initiatives, to get together uh, the corporal works of mercy and service projects and things like that. And we do need to depend upon the theological experts to navigate the very, you know, tricky waters, if you will, of um, points of doctrine and church teaching. And so that effort is ongoing especially in the areas of, of baptism and Eucharistic ministry. It's so very, very important. But we are to be partners, all of us, in the quest for Christian unity. There can be no doubt that that is what Christ intends. And as, uh, as Jared mentioned earlier, it is a scandal that, that we have so many Christian denominations uh, in this country alone that uh, we need to be working uh, to be united in the essential beliefs uh, of our Christian faith and uh, to realize that differences can remain in those things which are not essential. And so uh, for the mission of Christ to really gain traction, continue to have traction, it needs unity. The more unity that Christ's mission has, the more uh, the good news of the gospel will be able to be proclaimed to the four corners of the world. And so uh, what we need for continued progress is uh, certainly motivation. We have to believe that uh, Christian unity is, is something that deserves our attention. And uh, of course, we just uh, finished celebrating the octave for the unity uh, for, Christ, uh, for the Christian unity in late uh, January, which is something that's very, very important. And I have to say, I, I am very, uh, very, very touched by the letters I get from various uh, Christian churches in West Michigan saying that they're praying for me. But it makes a lot of sense. We should be praying for each other and, and for the, the common advancement of the mission of Christ. That is really what we're all about. To lay down our lives for the Lord and to be able to fulfill that great commandment of loving God with all that we have and all that we are and our neighbors ourselves. Really, that is what we're called to do. We know that we are made in God's human image and likeness, and God is love. We learn especially from the Joannine scriptures. That if God is love, and we are made in God's image and likeness. Our vocation is love, and that ultimately will determine everything. That is what we are called to do and what we are called to be. And, and first, to receive and give that love within the family, but it's got to uh, go out go out to all the world and tell the good news. The good news is that God loves us and Jesus has saved us. And we have a wonderful destiny that awaits. We also need formation, and I think that's where, where initiatives such as the St. Benedict Forum can be very, very important. We, we need to, uh, to be able to share our ways to uh, come to a deeper relationship with the Lord. And I think there are many wonderful 
spiritualities that, that have enriched the Catholic Church over the ages that I think can be of great, great benefit to other uh, Christians of uh, you know, other religious denominations. I think that one of our strong points in Catholicism is spirituality. And you know, the whole notion of having a spiritual record of various strains of spirituality that come from either from St. Francis or St. Teresa or some of the religious orders. Uh, there, you know, there's many ways. There's, there's one common holiness, but there's many ways that uh, we use our vocations to achieve that holiness, to be one with the Lord. And of course, what is very important is education. I certainly don't know as much about the Reformed churches uh, and, and about the Protestant denominations as I need to or should. The same is true with uh, other religious churches in terms of their uh, understanding of and I'm hoping that one of the things that you know, uh, the same the Benedict Forum can do is maybe to uh, present an authentic view of the Catholic Church and maybe dispel some of the caricatures that seem to have a very deep-seated and enduring presence in the minds of so many of the community. So that uh, is basically uh, what I had to say in terms of introductory remarks and uh, certainly we welcome questions or observations that you have. Thank you very much. Hello, Bishop. Thank you for being here. Um, it means a lot to me that you're here, so I thank you. Um, my name is Tom Eggleston. I am a, a parishioner at St. Francis right down the street and also a, a staff member at St. Francis and at Our Lady of the Lake across, across town where I do pastoral care. Um, my, question, my question is, what, um, what gives you joy and what is heavy on your heart? And I want you to feel free to interpret that question however, however you like. It's a personal question, so I don't want you to feel like you have to answer it personally. But so perhaps as a pastor, what is, as a pastor of the Diocese of Grand Rapids, what, what gives you joy? Or as a human being, what, what gives you joy these days and what, what weighs heavy on you? Thank you. One of the continuing reflections that I have is that even after over a year and a half as bishop, I still feel like I'm on honeymoon. In other words, you know, when you're so-called on honeymoon, people treat you with kid gloves, and you know, it, it, after a while, you get down to the, the brass tacks. You know, it's like being on a honeymoon and then beginning the, the, the challenging work of being married. Uh, I, I feel that I have a, a wonderful reception here. I feel very blessed to be here, and uh, that has not diminished at all. And you know, since I became bishop in June of 2013, and so. Uh, I, maybe it's the grace of God, maybe it's the, the, uh, the friendliness and support of the people in West Michigan, but I uh, really have not had any dips, if you will, in that overall attitude. I, I love meeting with the people as far as I'm concerned. You know, the, the things that I love to do the most and spend a lot of time on are visiting you know, in the classrooms, the, the Catholic school, grade school, and high school classrooms, as well as the parishioners. You know, as a pastor, Sunday is the best day of the week. You know, you, you deal with a lot of uh, more serious and more challenging items, uh, you know, Monday through Friday, and perhaps even into Saturday on Sunday. 
uh, you come together to pray together, to worship together, Christ is in your midst, and you, you get a very, very balanced picture of uh, the local community of faith. You're not just dealing with, with the bomb throwers or the troublemakers or people who have a legitimate uh, <coughs> wound or injury. And, uh, and that's kind of the thing that I found in visiting the parishes, is that, you know, if they have a reception afterwards, First of all, I think food, it, it really puts everybody in a good mood. <laughs> so that is pretty good. I normally do it. I station myself at the end of the serving table uh, and eat last, but I'm able to, in that way, when they're clutching all their plates, you know, I'm able to say hello to them individually and, and, and get to meet them. It's harder to work a crowd when you know, they're, they're around tables and the tables are close together. But what I found is you get a very balanced picture of things. So in other words, you know, if somebody says, you know, pastor is uh, treating me and my mother unkindly or something like that. But then you see, you know, you talk to the rest of the parishioners and you realize how much they love the pastor. You realize that these things are, uh, you know, you have to take things within context. And so you find out a lot of very positive things. And, you know, a town hall meeting, usually somebody's got something on their mind. Right? You know, it's kind of like a, That the parents of the school getting together. You know, you're not going to spend all your time talking about all the great things that are happening. But you get a better, you get a much better feel for that. Uh, certainly, when you go out to the parish. And so I love it. This past weekend, I was at three parishes. I was at uh, Christ the King in Howard City. I was at St. Francis in Lakeview, and I was at St. Michael the Archangel in Remus. Luckily, I drove there on Saturday. The evening and spent the night in Howard City because the roads were awful. It was farm roads with the drifts and the ice and things like that. But, you know, it was just wonderful. I really enjoyed it. Um, it's hard to say what lies heavy on my heart. Uh, you know, there's nothing that immediately comes to my mind. I, uh, I do feel, I think, um, some frustration at the direction of things, generally speaking. I, I, things happen, you know, one of the revolutions that, that we've that really changed, there's the industrial revolution, there's the sexual revolution, there's the technological revolution, and things are happening so quickly. It's just amazing how something can get some traction, and all of a sudden it's, it's been on its way. I mean, it used to take Especially in matters of church discipline, even teaching, you know, this might take centuries, but now things are happening at such a breakneck speed. It's even, it's even difficult having time to reflect on what's going on. I mean, we just read in the paper yesterday that now a child might have three parents. All right, in London, I think the Parliament approved uh, the possibility of um, some genetic uh, manipulation to that might be able to for, forestall or to eliminate uh, maybe some, some deficiencies or things that might be a mitochondrial. Uh, uh, I don't know that much about medicine, but you, know, you can have three, parent, three parents, then you've got DNA of three parents. And of course, what that means is that one embryo is destroyed. So, uh, you know, it, it's really hard to reflect on all of this stuff that's happening so quickly that are being done. I mean, uh, I suppose it uh, would, wouldn't be surprising someday that maybe you'll have, be able to have a, 
not to be able to need to carry a child, that you'll be able to have a baby, you know, outside the womb that can be developed and sustained and can be born. I mean, who knows with the way that uh, the, the, the science and biology, it's just, uh, who knows where we're headed? And, and you know, the, the ability to reflect on that, you know, ethically and morally, it, it's, it, it's hard to even keep up with it. And, uh, so in a, in a sense, that's heavy on my heart, but sometimes my head is spinning at the way things are going. And, uh, um, and I really believe, uh, you know, I'm a Catholic bishop, so I believe wholeheartedly in what the church uh, proclaims and teaches. And so it's, uh, it, it's getting somewhat exasperating to see how uh, uh, we seem to be on the defensive all the time. And uh, I'm a little worried also about you know, conscience protection, religious freedom. Seems, you know, for example, you know, Mario Cooper, Andrew Cuomo in January said that if you're if you're pro-life, you have no, you're not welcome in New York. You know, you're not. This is not the way we are. Well, you know, what that meant was, as far as I understand, it meant his dad, Mario, was not welcome in his state either. You know, before he died, he was uh, uh, pro-life in, in his own personal conviction. So. In other words, uh, you know, remarks like that, you know, somebody from Mozilla Thunderbird, you know, having to resign as CEO because they gave $500 to Proposition 8, you know, a couple of years earlier. I mean, talk about, uh, you know, intolerance, it seems to me. So, I mean, these are, these are some of the things that I suppose would, if there's a heaviness, it's kind of a little bit of concern in those areas. Okay, so what is the church doing to reach out to the Latino population? I'm glad you asked it. We're doing quite a bit. Uh, the Latino population in the United States is one-third and growing very quickly. And I had the opportunity to be in Arizona about two weeks ago. And uh, it is, it is, I, I certainly noticed the difference that the Latinos there are, are much more integrated into the culture. And then, of course, more people speak Spanish here in southern, I was in the Tucson area in Arizona. And there was just a much more comfort and ease, I think, that uh, the Latinos certainly feel very much at home and welcome in, in some of those border states. I, I didn't sense that as much here. Uh, and uh, I reflected upon it. But the fact of the matter is that in the Diocese of Grand Rapids, one out of every three of our Catholics is Latino. And so it's very, very important that we would want to uh, welcome with the joy the blessing of our Latino brothers and sisters. One of the first things that uh, I had a number of ideas that uh, haven't gone anywhere. One of the first things that I was uh, very much interested in was the, the fact that in the Grand Rapids area in particular, the Latino Catholic population, the Latino population in general is underserved, certainly by the church. One of the things that I was certainly interested in doing was to bring in, I was looking to bring in a high school, the Christopher Ray High Schools, which have been it's something that's been developed, where it's a kind of a work-study program and uh, it's been very, very successful, and it's only available to urban, uh, underserved populations. I thought, we really need to 
develop uh, leadership in the Latino community, one of the ways we can do that is education. I think that's very, very important. Uh, they were not interested in Grand Rapids uh, because the population was uh, not large and they didn't feel we had a receptive enough donor base to, to come in, so that was that. One of the things that I have done, again, in the area of education is that I have quadrupled the amount of tuition assistance that is available to students who want to come to Catholic schools in all of our schools in the Diocese of Grand Rapids. And you know, part of that is not only to hire a marketing communications director, but also a director of enrollment enhancement. And one of the things that we're going to do in addition to that is to be to hire some adrenas to go out into the Latino communities to be able to, in a very approachable and engaging way, to talk to the parents and to realize that Catholic education, which I think is going to be a great blessing to their children and their families, is, is more attainable and reachable than they may have thought. So that's one of the things that we're, we're really trying to do. I mean, I personally, at this point, you know, I am able to uh, say mass in Spanish. That was something new for me, but it was something I felt I needed to do as Bishop of Grand Rapids with one out of every three of my uh, people in my flock being of uh, Hispanic or Latino origin. So I can say Mass in Spanish, I can preach in Spanish, where I have a lot of trouble is conversing afterwards you know, with the people. It's, <laughs> my ear is, no, is not where it should be in regard to conversing, but I wanted to communicate to them and when going to the migrant camps and celebrating Mass, uh, in having, I'm going to be having a confirmation at, uh, at one of our Hispanic parishes, St. Joseph the Worker. And instead of delegating one of the Spanish-speaking priests to do that, I'm going to do it. I'm the bishop, you know, and I will come there. So I think it's very important that we begin to uh, recognize and to incorporate and welcome our uh, Latino brothers and sisters. So those are some of the things that are really on my mind, I cannot, uh, I have to be attentive to such a important uh, component of the flock. First of all, thank you so much for being here, and thank you so much to St. Benedict Forum for this opportunity. Uh, my name is Jamie, I'm a senior here, and I'm the Union of Catholic Students Leadership. And my question is, in the way of faith, what advice do you have for our students at this important stage in your life? The most important thing is find out what God wants you to do. In other words, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So in other words, kind of doing the Father's will on earth means asking the Father, what would you have me do? And obviously we have an overarching vocation. You know, I've been ordained minister uh, a good number of the people here today are married. Uh, some will remain in the single state, some maybe not, but there's also the possibility of uh, vocation in a religious order. Uh, so in other words, I think what's really important is, and, and not just for happiness, because uh, you know, how do we define happiness? But I'm thinking of more of an underlying joy in life and meaning in life, and the important thing is to uh, you know, thank God every day for the gift of the day and ask God what you want me to do with it. You know, that's a, that is 
really being alert you know, to uh, the Lord's action and our response to the Lord. So I think it's very important. I have to believe that God will hear you and God answers our prayers. You may not hear a voice, but there comes to be a convergence really of things that come together and say, I really need to go to seminary or yes, this is the one I think I should marry or whatever it is, or this is my age or whatever it is. Um, best to include God in your plans. Yeah, things will go a lot better. So I, I really think, so that means prayer, but it also means really working at that commitment to, uh, and, and really a response to God's love, His love is, is a self-sacrificing and generous love. So you know, the, 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 something that's a very important you know, spiritual truth that we need to learn sooner than later is you know, your life is not about you. You know, if you think your life is about you and it's all centered on me, 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 you've missed the point. What is important is your life is all about Christ in you and working through you. And, uh, you know, as John the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease. And I think that's really the path towards having a meaningful life, coming to know the Lord, and really doing God's will on earth. First of all, uh, hi, thank you for, uh, for coming and for, for speaking. Um, my name is Aaron Van Osterhout. I'm a professor here in the history department. Um, and uh, I do come from a Protestant background, but we are, we are co-alumni of Notre Dame. And, and my daughter actually, thanks to one of your programs, actually attends a Catholic school here uh, in, the, in the Holland area. Um, and uh, my question piggybacks on the earlier question by the young, young lady. I'm not sure where she is now. But, um, Essentially, it's, it's a question about how ecumenism looks among uh, your parishioners. Um, and my background is in Mexican history, actually. And in the time that I spent there, what I noticed most was uh, a sort of aggressive rise of Protestantism. And I say aggressive because um, a lot of these churches uh, take a, a rather hostile stance against Catholicism and see their rise coming at the expense of Catholicism in Mexico particularly. But also, I, I see this trend in, in Latin America as well, and I'm wondering, with a growing parishional population here in the United States of descent, of Latin American descent, do you see ecumenism here becoming a little more difficult, or, or how, how do you see it among parishioners here, uh, particularly in that light is what I'm interested in, but in, however you want to answer this, this is fine. Thank you. Yeah. The largest religious denomination in the United States is Catholicism, I think. Baptists are second, and ex-Catholics are third. <laughs> and uh, it's troubling. Uh, I, I find it, you know, I think if we want to share the gospel and we want to spread the good news, I think that our first, I think the first outreach should be for those who have no faith in Jesus, but to be, uh, to be, uh, to be looking to other Christian denominations to, to bolster your church, uh, I think is, uh, it's really not the first thrust of, of what we're doing in proclaiming the gospel. I mean, for example, when we welcome uh, people to new faith on Holy Saturday at the Easter Vigil in the Catholic Church, the people who are supposed to be there are those who are receiving the gift of faith, not those who are entering into full communion, all right? We have a lot of uh, people who are Christian who have discern that they want to enter into full communion with the Catholic Church, and they certainly are welcome, but really, for example, our, our uh, missionary outreach, our evangelical outreach should not be to Christian reform.
reform or to the reformed or to the Lutherans. That's not where we should be trying to find souls for Christ. And so it's, it's amazing that oftentimes that uh, because of uh, a lot of Catholics who have a very superficial knowledge of their faith and have not really got any spiritual momentum in laying down their life to the Lord to the point where it makes a difference, they are they're sitting ducks. In other words, you have somebody who knows the Bible, who can invite them to a wonderful sense of fellowship on Wednesday night with a Bible study, and they feel they're cared for. You go to a Catholic parish, I mean, the parish that I had as a pastor had 5,500 people in it. Now, how do you get to know them, especially if they're not showing up on a regular basis? It's very, very difficult. But if you have a you know, a small community of about 600 people. You know, they've got their coat racks in the back and their name tags for heaven's sakes. You know? So they know each other very, very well. So it's a, it's a very, very attractive thing. I mean, there's a very, very deep uh, concern and interest and, and really a cultivation of a, a relationship. They feel like they matter. And so uh, a lot of those more aggressive uh, denominations, shall we say, aren't really involved in ecumenism. I, I really think that they're, um, they're not, if you say the mainstream, looking for Christian unity. And so um, what does that mean on the parish level? Well, on, on, you know, as important as ecumenism is, I, I don't know that it is a major theme in our, our Catholic We had a, a handful of parishioners that were absolutely dedicated uh, to uh, the unity of Christians and would go to everything. So we had, you know, there was the, the service, the prayer service before Thanksgiving, the week of Christian unity. Uh, we had some shared prayer experiences and reflections during Lent, but there was about the same 62 people, you know, from each of the denominations. I keep seeing the same, the same faces there. So, you know, with, with so many other things, you know, it's, it's a matter of priorities. Uh, we need to get our people, first of all, uh, you know, to be on fire with love of the Lord. And uh, the outreach to others, hopefully, will also include those who may not be, you know, exactly of the same doctrinal positions, but we can still see the fact that we are all made in God's image and likeness, and especially when we put on Christ in baptism, we should see the face of Christ in each other. I mean, that really is very, very important. So we have a lot of work to go, and uh, of course, it's one of my concerns with the Latino community. We have in our diocese, the bishops, Bishop Haas, back in the 50s, uh, made it a point, and we still do this, we try to have our seminarians, when they, when they graduate, they, they can speak Spanish. So uh, our latest uh, group of priests that was ordained in 2013, three of them, two, um, uh, let's see, one of them is assigned in Holland. He's here, where is he? Is Father James still here? Father James Manderwan? Right here. All right, so he is saying mass in Spanish. And uh, let's see, where are the other two? Uh, well, then Father Scott Nolan in downtown Grand Rapids at St. Mary's, there's a Latino community there, and he's saying Mass in Spanish. We really are trying to get more priests from Mexico and Nicaragua because, you know, a, a Yankee-speaking uh, Spanish is better than nothing, so to speak, and, and it's very much appreciated. I don't, don't get me wrong, 
But there is something far more different when you have somebody whose first language is Spanish and who may have come from the same state that you did in Mexico. I mean, I see that with uh, one of our parishes, uh, uh, St. Francis Xavier, Our Lady Guadalupe, with you know, Father uh, Quintana, you know, who's from Mexico, and it's, he has a relationship with those people that uh, is, is greatly enhanced by the fact that he's one of them. All right, so we really need that too. And that, so that's a concern of mine. I'm trying to, to get uh, Latino priests coming in. We've been putting out some feelers, but uh, um, you're right, it's, 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 on the grassroots level, what you have going on is, is maybe praying together, service projects together, um, but it's probably not at the top priority. It would just be a guess. And of course, it varies from parish to parish. You know, some parishes are known for one thing over another. And a lot has to do with the pastor. A lot has to do with the history of the parish. I mean, Father Quintana celebrated his 100th anniversary of his parish in concert with a, a local parish, like a block away, who was also celebrating their 100th anniversary. They had a joint celebration uh, of their 100th anniversary last year. So it depends an awful lot on the vision of the leader and things like that. And, Hello, I am Daniel Karlovich. I am a senior mechanical engineer here at Hope. Um, I'm from um, St. Anthony of Padua's in the Diocese of Lansing in Michigan. And um, now I'll go to St. Francis White here at college. Um, my question, there have been a number of prominent Catholic politicians at the highest levels of our governments who have endorsed and promoted views contrary to the Catholic moral teachings, in particular abortion. Um, so my question, there have been, there has been some backlash against the United States bishops in allowing these pro-abortion politicians to receive the Eucharist while publicly um, opposing church teachings and even endorsing abortion as authentic church teaching. But my question is, how are the bishops continuing to work on a proper response to these individuals? Thank you. Well, the, the reception of communion really is, uh, as you say, is based upon, in a sense, being on the same page. And that's uh, one of the reasons why intercommunion, Eucharistic sharing, is, uh, is very, very rare in the Catholic Church because um, the reception of the Eucharist is a sign of unity already achieved. It's not a, a sign of, of, of unity to be hoped for. So in other words, uh, basically when you're saying amen to the body and blood of Christ, you're, you're basically saying, I believe. And it's, it's, it's the whole package, so to speak. That's a very, very difficult issue. The bishops have, have come down on both sides. Uh, I think one of the more fruitful approaches is to uh, approach a politician quietly and to try to dialogue with that politician. Um, there is no doubt that you know one of the, in, the benefits, for example, of Catholic education is there are no artificial barriers that uh, the faith, the practice of the faith, are interwoven throughout all of the school day. You know, whether you're in the, on the playground or you're in the restroom or you're in the hallway or you're in the class or wherever you are, cafeteria. You know, those values are interwoven and it's like the air you breathe. And I think that uh, the politicians, for uh, the necessity of being elected, have 
decide to compartmentalize you know, where their faith will or will not uh, impact you know, their, their actions. And so as a result, you have you, you basically had a handful of bishops, more or less, who said that they're, they're not welcome to receive communion. Uh, you have others that say that they, they shouldn't, but they're, they're not going to, you know, we don't have a, we don't have a sheriff, in other words. Uh, and so uh, when you talk about the reception of communion, an awful lot of it depends on the individual. You know, you're not supposed to receive the Eucharist if you are in the state of serious sin that has not been uh, absolved, you know, by sacramental confession. We leave that uh, determination that people should have a conscience and they should know whether or not they are worthy to come forward to receive the body and blood of the Lord. You can't look at a person in the communion line and tell whether they are worthy or whether they're even Catholic. You know, I, uh, I'm sure I, you know, I did many weddings and funerals. I'm giving maybe the first or second communion to people. You know, because uh, you know, it's everybody come forward. Uh, I mean, we we really shouldn't be doing that. But I mean, oftentimes, you know, the, uh, the the manners used to be very well understood. You know, in terms of what you do when you go to a Catholic mass or what you do when you go to another service of another religion. Those things are not as it's clear anymore. There's been confusion on the part of uh, priests and ministers as well as the people themselves. But in other words, in a sense, there should be, if you have a well-developed conscience, there should be a self-policing, in a sense, that goes on. And, uh, and that, that really is what we count on. You, know, you have to have a well-formed conscience. There have been some politicians that can accept what bishops have told them, and they announce that they will stay away from communion. So, I mean, it hasn't been, you know, a, a total butting of heads. I mean, some of them realize, that, you know, they, they have a, a sense of, you know, they, they have a sense of understanding and they realize that this is causing confusion and uh, could even cause scandal, and so they, they won't go there. Others, of course, are just the opposite. They're kind of, kind of very aggressive and militant about it. So it's a, it, it's a pretty uh, difficult thing. And I, I think that... Uh, we don't, the, the last thing you want to have is, is to have a, a tussle or struggle in the community line, all right? So you never, you don't want to have a fight. <laughs> There's nothing more, uh, I don't know, uh, jarring, if you will, than, than, than having a struggle in the communion line. I mean, when I, you know, when I knew people shouldn't be going forward to communion, I would talk with them privately afterwards. Never, never would be. Upsetting. People are in, in a, they're in a spirit, they're fixed, they're, they're locked in spiritually, and the last thing you want to do as a leader of prayer is to do anything that jolts them out of that, that uh, you know, <coughs> the state in which they're in, you know, by, you know, throwing something at a server or yelling or, you know, you just don't do that. You know? uh, I used to have a, there was in one of the places where I was uh, helping out on the weekend when I was a seminary prof, and that as soon as I, uh, finish the gospel and put the gospel book back down, I heard this dink, this guy was timing my homilies. And I was always so tempted, and after I got done, you'd dink, and you'd look at his watch like this, you know, something, well, how long was it today? <laughs> but uh, you, don't draw, you don't draw attention to stuff like that. A lot of people will miss you know, what you're upset about, and all it does is so. I think that's one of the things, I think that's being pastoral. So you, you really don't want to have those kind of tussles when you're involved in separating the mysteries of your faith. You try to deal with it in, another, in a, a, a better form right now.
Hi, um, my name is Andrew LaRoche. I belong to the parish of St. Mary's Visitation in New Salem. And my question for you was, how does working with the other dioceses um, around us and other denominations affect how you, you are shaping Grand, the Grand Rapids Diocese? Well, we always look for best practices, don't we? You know, if somebody has a good idea, I am very, very much open to it. And, uh, you know, as a new bishop, I've learned from my brother bishops, there are seven dioceses in the state of Michigan. There's Marquette, there's Gaylord, there's uh, Saginaw, there's Grand Rapids, there's Kalamazoo, there's Lansing, there's Detroit. And we get together on a regular basis, and uh, I ask them for advice, and I, you know, they share with what's going on in their dioceses and things like that. And so, uh, yeah, I, we go, we go uh, even nationally, we go to the bishops' meetings in Baltimore. Uh, next week I will be uh, in Washington for a new bishops' uh, seminar. There'll be 25 other bishops there. Uh, it's a great opportunity for learning. I mean, I used to do that as a pastor. You know, I would ask the parishioners when they would go on vacation or on a business trip to bring back the bulletins of the, uh, the churches where they attended. And they were very happy to do that. And occasionally you'd pick up something that you'd want to do. And this is a good idea. I never thought of saying it this way. Or, you know, you know, here's something that's being done. I think we could do this here. So, yes, I, I certainly have an openness uh, to learning from uh, other churches to do things that I think would ultimately you know, advance what we're all about in terms of mission. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm open to that kind of thing. And I, and I hope, we, we, for example, have a, you know, in terms of education, we have people coming from all over the country to visit uh, some of our schools. We have this WINGS program, which is of great interest to uh, parishes, Catholic parishes that have small numbers. And what, what the WINGS program basically does is you're able to take a, it's a low population school and keep it going. You might combine a few grades, and maybe it's you know, grades four through six is in the same classroom, and you know, the teacher will teach them all the division. You don't necessarily to shut the school down. Uh, and there's lots of small little communities that have Catholic schools that they need to shut down because the number of kids available are, are declining. They can keep going. So we have people, uh, superintendents of schools, uh, directors of uh, education and diocese are coming to look into that. So, in, in a way, so we're, we're pioneering something in the Grand Rapids Diocese that people are looking at to see if it might be a good fit for them, too. So, these are, you know, so it kind of works both ways. Bishop, I would say your last name, but I don't know how to pronounce it. Walkoviak. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm a retired Christian Reformed preacher, Dick Stravers. And not a question, a commendation. When my family and I went to City View Restaurant to eat on a Sunday noon, I, <laughs> I saw Charlie, I saw Father Charlie Brown, so I thought I gotta go say hello to him. And Father Vanderlaan was there. And then Father Charlie Brown said, this is Bishop I <laughs> what impressed me so much, you didn't grimace or say anything unkind to this Christian before preacher. 
And you said, are you here alone? And I said, no, I'm here with my family. You said, I want to meet them. And our hearts were warmed. I thank you for that. God bless you. My name is Madeline Taylor. I'm a student at Hope and a parishioner at St. Francis. And I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit more to our vocation of love. There's a lot of um, definitions of love going around in society right now. So what would be the one that our vocation would entail? Well, it's the, uh, I'm no Greek scholar, but we're in the agape. You know, there's uh, eros, and there's philia, and there's agape. Eros, obviously, the sexual passionate love. There's philia, which is friendship, and then there's uh, agape, which is a, a disinterested, self-sacrificing, selfless love, which is really a good example of Christ. You know, he, he, uh, his love was certainly uh, always outbound, if you will. And so I think that uh, we experience, most people experience all three levels, but where you really want to get to is the point where your love is, is no longer uh, something that you hold and clutch tightly to yourself, but the gift that you have received, you give as a gift. In other words, uh, we just buried a, a deacon yesterday uh, in our uh, diocese. Deacon Ken Baldwin. Um, deacon Ken Baldwin. And here was a man. He had five sons and a daughter. And uh, for many, many Christmases, he would be in Juarez, Mexico. He would spend his Christmases away from his family in Juarez, Mexico, to make Christmas special for the people of Juarez. He either, uh, you know, he would have collected things and brought them there. Um, now, he couldn't have done what he did without the love of his family, but, you know, we think about, when we think about Christmas, we think about scrambling around on the floor in our jammies, opening up gifts and then having a nice breakfast. You know, it's a tremendous family moment. There he was, thousands of miles away, with uh, the people that he grew to love. I mean, he, he had this kind of a, a unity with the human family. I mean, that's, uh, you know, that, that is what, uh, you know, um, every now and then we're touched by it. You know, we're touched by uh, the things that happen to people that we will never know. Uh, I mean, we're, we're aghast at the atrocities that are going on in the Middle East. And we feel a real oneness and sympathy for the families that, that are undergoing that. You know, people who've lost, you know, lost loved ones on an airplane or a, a ferry that overturned or whatever. We can we can sympathize with them. That are we're all part of something much larger, and, and certainly that is true in one's own individual life. So I think that's the kind of love you're looking for. I think you're. Your love has to be outward bound. You, know, you know, love God with all that you have, and then when you do that, you cannot help 